Welcome back to the Culture Blast podcast, a new series of deep dive interviews with personalities from across the world of culture. I'm Farah Nayeri, and I'm a journalist and author based in London. In the last episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Emma Thompson, the Oscar-winning actress and writer. In this episode, I'm meeting another dream guest, Niall Rogers, the Grammy Award-winning composer, producer, arranger, and guitarist of Chic. As somebody once said, Niall has written music for David Bowie, Diana Ross, Duran Duran, and Daft Punk. And that's just the Ds. This episode is sponsored by the Truth and Reconciliation Conversations Global Summit. Niall Rogers, thank you so much for joining us as one of the very first guests of Culture Blast. It's really wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Niall, I had the pleasure of meeting you a year ago when you were performing in London at a fundraiser for your foundation, the We Are Family Foundation. And a month later, you, me, and just about everyone on the planet was going into lockdown because of the coronavirus outbreak. So, I was just wondering what your life has been like in that time. Um, it's been a real roller coaster. Uh, uh, God, I've run the gamut of emotions. My mom passed away uh, only a few weeks ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, now, oh my God, time, I lose track of time. My mom passed away two days after Christmas. So it's actually been a few months now. Um, but it just, honestly, it seems like it was yesterday. So that was devastating. And now, in retrospect, I know that I was probably in about um, a state of mourning for a, about a month and a half. I was basically emotionally numb, almost physically numb, too. So it was very, <sighs> that was difficult. And yeah, perfectly, all, perfectly normal and to be expected, I guess. Yeah, I, th that's what people are telling me now. I've never experienced anything quite like that. Um, but but on the the upside, because uh, I've described it as a roller coaster, and it's been exactly that type of metaphorical ride. Uh, I've had a lot of positivity. I've done a number of terrific songs with artists old and new. I have three viable records on the charts right now. Did um, a clubhouse call last night with the with the artist called Disclosure and um, and a couple of people who work with me on the Daft Punk record, and uh, we were talking about the breakup of Daft Punk yesterday. Well, so, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. That was actually my next question. So, um, Niall, how how do you feel about that, and why do you think it's happening? I'm sort of ambivalent because I'm incredibly romantic about life in general, and I think because I respect their partnership so much, and I've worked with them in a really extraordinary way that was one of the most important records of my life. You know, we won the Grammy for yeah, album sure. of the year. And that's the first time a dance record has won album of the year since uh, Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees. That's, uh, I mean, talk about an accomplishment. You know, the Grammys 
don't necessarily, well, let me put it to you like this. Dance records are to the Grammys as comedy is to the Academy Awards. (laughs) 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 And so you were saying about Daft Punk, I was wondering, you said you were very romantic as, a, as in general, and now these two are splitting up. So how does that leave you feeling? And and more importantly, why are they doing this? Well, so let me explain the romantic aspect. If you look at the film epilogue, even though they are very clear when they make a decision as to what they're going to do, If you notice, and maybe this is me, but if you notice in the film, the only way that uh, Thomas was able to explode or uh, self-destruct, if you will, in the robotic world was that Guimont had to set the timer. Now these two partners, uh, one is gone and the other one is now left to roam the earth all by himself. I think that it's a very romantic concept that the same partner who set him to self-destruct is also the only one who has the technical knowledge to put him back together again. That may not be the way they're thinking of it, but to me, that's incredibly romantic and wonderful. And um, that would be great. And then they can get back together and do an album, I don't know, 10 years from now, five years, whenever. So you're being an optimist, as is your nature, I guess, Niall, and you're sort of not seeing this as a permanent divorce. That's exactly correct. And also, I believe in both their talents. So whatever they do individually will probably be wonderful. Uh, I have to liken it back to my own career. When I broke up with my partner, Bernard Edwards, both he and I went on to have bigger careers than we did when we were in the original lineup of Chic. Um, But here's a question for you, and it's not just about you and Bernard or about Daft Punk. I mean, you watch bands sort of dissolve all the time. And why do you think that is? Why is it, you know, these people drift apart after coming together and being so close? You could say the same thing about marriages, right? I mean... In many marriages, there are artistic elements, uh, social elements, political elements, all sorts of things that sometimes can divide a couple that may be very much in love. And even after they break up, they can still be in love. But there needs to be something fulfilled that's no longer being fulfilled by the other partner. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't love each other anymore. It's just that they need to have something that the other person isn't providing. And that's sort of how I look at most bands that I know that have broken up. When they're together again in the same room, uh, maybe there's a little bit of uh, (laughs) going on. Uh, But then after that, it sort of seems to get swept under the carpet rather quickly, and they start to reminisce about, oh, my God, remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? And that's also the same reason why so many bands get back together again. Yeah, that's a great analogy, actually. I I completely understand. Um, So let's go back to the subject of your mother, because um, Beverly Goodman, you know, she sadly passed away, as you said, two days after Christmas. And you describe her very lovingly in your fantastic autobiography, Le Freak, which I have to say I read twice 
<laughs> and I recommend highly to anybody who's listening to this program. Um, you describe her in that book as a beautiful and brilliant woman who was immersed in art, music, and literature, and who had you at the age of 14. And to which I say thank you very much, Beverly, because uh, for bringing <laughs> for bringing Niall into the world. Because she was so young, she you lived with her intermittently as a little boy, and yet you don't have any kind of bitterness about that. And I was just wondering how you look back on her now that she's no longer with us. Yeah, I don't have any bitterness uh, at all because, you know, my mom's situation was really probably not that unique, but what made it unique was the decisions that both she and I made. And she gave me the distance to be able to make my own decisions. Let me just clarify. So my mom uh, fell pregnant the very first time she had sex, which was, she was around 13 years old. Right. She was 13 years old. Right. And it was Christmas time. She was going out with my dad. And I guess, you know, when you're a teenager, you say, okay, here's a good Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> Let me lose my virginity yeah. um, and give my boyfriend a good time. Uh-huh. She, she was, you know, got pregnant that first time. But my mom was now just 14. She didn't have many life coping skills. No. And she just did the best she could. So she went back to, to secondary school. And she found that that wasn't right for her. So she left school and got a job. She was trained as an IBM key punch operator. And that was pretty advanced for those days. Absolutely. Um, Early form of digital um, technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I say behind the player piano. Uh, But (laughs) uh, so my mom joined the workforce. She took care of us. But unfortunately, she developed a heroin habit at the time. At that point, it's probably very difficult to make enough money to support a family, uh, pay rent, buy groceries, and buy heroin because you have to do it every day. Right. Um, So it became more prudent and efficient for her to have me live with various family members and even friends who would take me in for weeks or months and every now and then a year at a time. Yes, I had a very nomadic childhood. Uh, But in that childhood, as much as I wanted to be with my mom, I also relished the freedom and was able to learn on my own. One, because I was was forced to, uh, and also because I wanted to. Learning was exciting to me. I didn't fault my mom for not having the skills to to do everything in the traditional way. I liked her because she treated me more like a peer than like a child. And that forced me to grow up. And it also allowed us to have a really great time together. I mean, think about this. If you take 100% of the time that I spent with my mother over the course of my life, I would say... 80% of that time was spent laughing. I mean, can you imagine that kind of life? Yeah. And and so, I mean, your mom and your handsome Jewish stepdad, Bobby, who you also cared for a lot, 
In your book, you write, they smoke pipes dressed impeccably and read Playboy for the articles. <laughs> um, they were surrounded by artists, musicians, but this was also, as you said, a household where there was substance abuse. You were coming across some pretty extraordinary characters in this atmosphere, and, and I just wondered if you could take us there in that household. If I were to walk in, who and what would I see? So if it were a really good day, yeah. you could easily see Thelonious Monk, Gloria Lynn, um, maybe Lenny Bruce. I don't remember Lenny Bruce coming to the house, but I remember my parents talking about him. So I assume that he may have. Um, you would see tons of Greenwich Village what we used to call sketch artists who would, it was like Paris, you you know, the artist on the street who would draw your portrait or uh -huh. paint your portrait. Yeah. The, those type of people were my parents' friends. Yeah. And. Uh, but then there was also, what was going on was also there was drug use. So you were a kid and you were mixed in with these people. And so I just wondered what it all looked like to you as a little boy. Well, it looked a little bit strange in a way because uh, we'd have incredibly stimulating intellectual conversations. And I noticed an interesting pattern with my mom's friends, my, my parents' friends. So they always spoke very slowly. And then sometimes mid-sentence, they would stop speaking entirely. Uh -huh. And I later realized that that was called nodding because the heroin would kick in. So they would say things to me like, uh, they, they always call me by my nickname. No one ever called me Niall. And that's probably because my biological father was named Niall too. Yeah, so, so you're called Pud. Right, so I was called Pud, right? They didn't yeah. want to get us confused. So I was Pud. And it's mainly because my skin is chocolate and chocolate pudding was a thing <laughs> in those days. So I was pudding, pudding pie, pud for short. Uh, so they would say, um, hey, pud, um, so what do you think about? Um, um, and, and then they would just <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> and I'd be sitting there going, uh, uh, yeah. And I noticed that there would be what I would call asleep standing up, but they were completely asleep. So I thought, but then they'd have that rocking back and forth motion that would start to take over when they'd look like they were losing their balance, but a junkie never falls. I have never seen a junkie fall down except for when one was on the bathroom floor, floor asleep. But they didn't fall there. They chose to lie there. Yeah. So it was it was a very colorful, interesting world. And it didn't feel dangerous to me at all. Thank you for, for um, taking us back to that time and also explaining why you don't have a sense of bitterness about your childhood. You almost became a concert guitarist. And um, I guess I understand you've been practicing a lot in lockdown. Okay, so that's... A little bit misleading. I wanted to practice okay. <laughs> a lot. Um, okay. But I found that what's really interesting, I find that whenever I pick up a beautiful, beautiful old instrument and I and I have a 
pretty nice collection. Uh, actually, I have an extraordinary collection that what winds up happening is I just start to soothe myself. So I happen to have a, a guitar next to me. Um, John Coltrane's Naima. Oh, not that played was... great. <laughs> not played great, oh. but I'm sitting in a wacky chair. So that was beautiful, um, <laughs> Niall. Thank you so much. It's so generous of you to share that with us. I really appreciate it so much. Yeah. So th- this mm-hmm. is all fun to me to to put together things that are not quite finished and to help people solve problems. Okay. You famously worked with David Bowie on his Let's Dance album, which is his best-selling album ever, which you produced in 17 days. And can I get you to tell me in your own words why Bowie was great? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) So I think of the great artists that I've worked with, and boy, there, there have been a lot from Bowie to Daft Punk to Paul Simon to Madonna. I mean, these are, these are great visionaries. They, they see the world in an interesting way. I have to say that David, and he used to get angry when I called him this, but I said to me, you're the Picasso of pop music. And he really didn't like that. He got really pissed off. Right. But uh, I just said, look, I'm sorry, man. You know, you explain things to me in the most abstract way, and I totally understand. <laughs> right. It's like, I said, no one else explains things to me like you do. And when you explain it, I get it. If anyone else were sitting in the room, they'd be sitting there scratching their head going, what the hell is this guy talking about? But with you, I get it. So that I guess that must say something about me, too. I must be as weird as you are. But... um you know, now as I get older, I really see the the difference between uh, an artist who somewhat has their hands tied, like me, like because in America, as a black artist, uh-huh. there's only I I really can only drive down one lane artistically. Nobody wants to hear a song like Let's Dance if it were, if it were written by Nile Rodgers. Like, no one, no one cares about that. What radio station would play that record? But once it's done by a white guy, all of a sudden that record is groundbreaking and interesting and cool and played on the black stations. Right. Now, 
that's a hard question to really answer because believe me, I know it's the truth. If any black group had come out with Let's Dance, there's no black radio station that would have played it. But a white artist does a song like Let's Dance and it's on every black radio station. I'm going to ask you about Madonna and um, Like a Virgin, which, uh, of course, you produced. And so let me ask you the same thing I asked about Bowie. I mean, I mean what, it, what is great about Madonna? And also, can you talk a little bit about her diva tendencies in the recording studio? Yeah, she, she was and probably still is. But you, you remember how I explained my relationship with my mom earlier, how I said that? Um, if you look at our lives on a graph, uh, 80% of our whole lives, of our waking lives, was spent laughing. Yeah. Same deal with Madonna. Okay. So the 20% of the time that we weren't laughing and she was really serious, it, I was still on the verge of cracking a joke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. um, you know, Madonna... Uh, was the only record... Well, actually, there were two. There were two records in my life that I quit. Oh, what am I talking about? There were three. <laughs> so I quit Madonna, I quit Aretha Franklin, and I quit Paul Simon. So I quit Madonna, and as I was getting on the elevator to go downstairs, and the reason why I quit was because she was really being cruel to the um, to the assistant engineers. And these these young kids were really just... You know, they're making a living trying to get smart, and they're there to help her. So one of the kids had to go to the bathroom, and Madonna turned around and said, I didn't tell you you could leave. So I said, you know, Madonna, if you're going to treat people like that, I'm I'm quitting. I just can't work with you. So I'm about to get on the elevator and go downstairs, and she walks uh, <laughs> she walks out the <laughs> studio and goes, Niall. And I said, yeah, Mo. She says, does that mean you don't love me anymore? And I just started cracking up. <laughs> so just like... I was always on the verge of a joke. She was always on the verge of a joke, too. So we spent most of our time laughing and joking and just being really good friends and having a good time. Yeah. And and it was my job, just like with Bowie, to help Madonna see her artistic vision, which was huge. There was no secret. <laughs> I said, so, Madonna, what do you want to do? She said, rule the world. And it was like, Wow. Yeah. Is that all you want me to do? You want to make a record that big? She was like, yeah, that's what I want to do, make a record that yeah. big. And you guys and still, we did. still friends or you still see each other? Or? Not really, We because we travel in different circles. But when I see her, boy, do we love it. I mean, yeah. we're, we're so, you know, we only see each other at things like the Grammys or, you know, or charity events. You know, I saw her at the United Nations once and things like that. So... I don't live the star life. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't do star stuff. Mm -hmm. Now that Daft Punk um, did the whole world a big favor and refused to put themselves in the spotlight and put you in the spotlight, <laughs> aren't you now the kind of celebrity who kind of walks out the, on the street and gets asked for selfies and, and gets deluged and can't really show his face anymore? I mean, you're pretty, f your f face is really, really famous now. Um, 
it happens way, way, way more than it's ever happened before. Right. But people are incredibly respectful. I don't have bodyguards, so I think that 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 um, mm-hmm. you know lets them know who I am as a person. So since I don't act a certain way, they don't feel compelled to act another way either. Like in other words, if I walked in, you know, maybe like, and I'm not putting the person down because I actually think she's a sweetheart. Um, but if I walked in like Kim Kardashian or somebody like that, mm-hmm. and I also realized I think that they do have to have bodyguards because one night I was um, with Angelina Jolie and I said to her, oh, let's go over here. Um, and I had suggested to her that we just walk into the hotel because this other way is shorter. Oh, my God. <laughs> she was swarmed and I was terrified. I was like, I've. I, I was like, oh my, now I see why you guys have bodyguards. I get it. Right. But um, but that doesn't happen to me. I'm not like a movie star. I'm not, you know, some big front man. And, you know. Yeah. That's, so well, here's, here's, here's the next question. Again, big front man. That's, that's what I'd like to ask you about now. I mean, what Pharrell Williams says is that your ethos has always been putting the other artists first, not putting yourself in the spotlight. And my question is, why not? Because you outplay most musicians, uh, as we already discussed. And without you, personally, I wouldn't be listening to most of those tracks. So why are you always hiding behind somebody else? Is it is it of a confidence thing uh, from childhood or why? Yeah, I would think that that's probably um, just a reflection of who I really am. I was always shy as a child. Right. I learned how to interact with people. One, because I'm genuinely interested in people. That's the the truth. To me, a human being is like reading a book. Like, you know, talking to a person, finding out where they come from, finding their lineage. Um, I always do that with total strangers. I'm fascinated by people. I'm fascinated with history. Um, and I don't think of myself as a star. I think that people who are stars have that thing. When you walk into a room with Diana Ross, whoo, star, sucks the oxygen right out of the room. You walk into the room with Madonna, star, sucks the oxygen out of the room. She is, all eyes are on her, even before she made it. And she and I used to go to clubs together. We walk into a club, imagine this. I'm the guy with all the hit records. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the guy born in Greenwich Village and know everybody. And I walk into the club. What do I hear when I walk into a club? Who's that girl with now? Who's that girl? Who's that girl with now? Who's that girl? Who's that girl with now? You would hear it over and over again, like a mantra. The din right. in the room was, who's that girl with now? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? Um yeah, so well, I mean, had... but I've seen you walk into a room and you are a star and you have all of that. You know, you walk in and everyone goes, oh, you know. Anyway, you don't want to be a star, so that's great. That's fine. But you are a star. Um. So the next question is a big one. It's uh, I wanted to ask you about the topic of race because it's really such a big part of the conversation 
not just in the United States, but with the killing of George Floyd, it's become a massive part of the conversation everywhere across the globe. And um, I just, I'm perplexed, you know, sitting on this side of the Atlantic. I just don't understand why race remains to this day such a big problem in America. Why does it divide people the way it does? And why can't Americans get over it? Well, it's quite unfortunate, but um, it's something that's baked into our culture. If you look at America after World War II and the concept of redlining and greenlining became a government policy indeed, um, you, you really notice it in a place like Los Angeles, that like it's so perfect, you know. These people live here. These people live there. These people live there, and it's it's so perfectly designed like that. But it was um, a practice that happened really across the country. And now, when you look at and so for people who may or may not understand the concept of redlining and greenlining is uh, taking a district and saying the people who live within these lines are either eligible for all the benefits that the the government can offer uh meaning uh you are you can get a mortgage to a mortgage on a house you can get bank loans you can start businesses you can get small business loans all sorts of things to help you live the american dream the people who live inside this other lines um don't have those advantages and they are not. Um, so if they go for a bank loan, if they go for a mortgage on their house, the odds are stacked up against them so high that it's almost impossible. And the people who break out of that are people like myself who have a talent that may be valuable to society at whole uh, or society, yeah, you know the whole of society where yeah, but why you, where this, they can say yeah why do we still have these dividing lines today though this is you know existed 60 70 years ago you know Be- because it's it's built in and and the thing is is that the people who grew up in those communities um just like they have history to look back upon and be happy those childhood memories for the most part was the reality they live with Except that, you know, what we, when we talk about race and you talk about race as being built in, right, baked in, when are we going to transcend this? I mean, it's just a, such a divisive issue. And, and, and I don't understand why we still need to be focusing on color, you know? Let me tell you something. Uh, I never believed that the year 2000 would look like the year 2000 looked. Um, I thought that by the year 2000, so remember, I'm born in 1952. Mm -hmm. So by the time the year 2000 came, that's, I don't think I'm going to live to be 100, but that's, you know, like I lived half my life by then. But, you know, I thought that we'd have a more, um, need I say the word utopian, I don't really mean utopian, but certainly a more understanding and cooperative type of world and mm-hmm. people would really get along because 
The one thing I know from being in business is that businesses do better when they cooperate. I do what I've always done is I, I talk to people, I try and teach by example, and I started my foundation, uh, We Are Family Foundation, after the 9-11 tragedies, uh, not only because three of my friends were in the first plane that was crashed into the World Trade Center, mm-hmm. but um, because the aftermath of 9-11 was almost equally as horrible. Uh, Americans as a whole, they don't know the difference between um, Muslim, Sikh, um, uh, or a Baha'i, um, or Hindi. They, yeah. they don't understand different. So anybody who looked like they were from the Middle East looked like they were a Muslim uh, to people in America. And boy, these people were getting killed and assaulted, just like now what's going on with the uh, COVID-19 virus, with um, our, our former president calling it the China virus. Right. There's been a huge uptick in assaults on Asian people in America. Yeah. Well, well, music is the great equalizer. It's the one thing that I know that um, seems to communicate to all people's um, in any language, because when I play We Are Family, I don't change the lyrics to fit the country that I'm in. I play We Are Family and we sing it in English. And the mm-hmm. people in the audience are singing it in English, even if we're in Morocco. Yeah. I mean, We Are Family is, as as uh, you said, the name of your foundation. And um, that's the connection between you and me, the executive director, Jess Tutonico, uh, introduced me to you, and uh, I also had the pleasure of uh, having a Zoom call with your girlfriend, Nancy Hunt. Um, we had a great chat, and Nancy Nancy runs the foundation. And she said, Niall is 68, but in his brain, he's nine. <laughs> <laughs> and because the foundation is all about empowering young people, I guess, you know, really young people, meaning children and teenagers, I wondered it's if, you know, that's why you want to help young people because you're nine in your own head. That's actually a pretty good, um, yeah, (laughs) very idealistic. I didn't have the sort of doom and gloom attitude that you can, you know, I know I'm not putting words in your mouth. You can see the world. Older people, adults look at the world in a very doom and gloom way. Like, oh my God, we're at the end. We can't turn it around. Yeah, Racism is out of control. Um, Sexual abuse issues, uh, climate change, uh, the destroying of the ecology, um, animals, habitats, and things like that. Whereas I see young people, especially in our charity, in our foundation, that they look at it like, no, 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 we're going to stop all that stuff from happening. We're going to fix it. And they're idealistic and they're just like me when I was a kid. So, uh, you know, I believed that with passion, compassion, and hard work, you can fix problems. And that's probably why I became a record producer, because every day I have problems to solve. And, and, and we figured that with our organization, those kids 
walk in the room as problem solvers. They're leaders right now in their own environment and their own world, and they won't settle for the hardships that are around them. They're trying to deal with those problems. So who better to talk to than people who are already in that mindset? The last thing I want to do is argue with a person who is is dogmatic and stuck in their ways. And boy, aren't adults dogmatic? Like they're the most, uh, the, yeah. you know, when I talk to people, <laughs> I always try and say, I never like to speak in absolutisms because I'm malleable. If you can convince me, I should think another way. I'm an open book. Let's go. Let's talk about it. But most people think like, this is black and white. It's got to be this way, so-and-so, and and that's it. And that's probably half the reason why it's so difficult to change people who have been brought up in, you know, in the system of, you know, green lining and red lining in America because their childhood memories are typically great. And even if they aren't great, they make them great. <laughs> yeah, I got it. And so... I just wondered, you know, for someone who has had such an extraordinarily rich life, what is on your wish list? You know, what's left for you to do? What What is it that that you've never been able to get around to doing and, and have aspirations to complete? Well, you know, after I wrote my memoir, I realized that, you, you know, I had to edit it down to about 330 pages but the original manuscript that I turned in was about 700 pages. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of story to tell. And I want to tell that story because it seems like people don't remember the America that I remember. They, it's, it's just, oh God, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me when I see them talking about disco music or psychedelic music or the beginning of hip hop and studio 54, it's always wrong. And I think to myself, why do they get it so wrong? Maybe right, it's because right. they didn't live through it. So they read about it. They saw pictures of it, but I'm fortunate enough to have lived through it all. And I was close to everything. Ah. And and I grew up in the midst of all that, and I never see films that delve into all of these other sort of subculture things unless they happen to be scandalous, right? So, yeah, they'll talk about the Manson killings. Right, um, right. But they don't necessarily talk about, and, and they may talk about Scientology or something, right. but they don't talk about it the way that these things uh, may have been. Uh, they may have affected the life of just say a young person walking through the world and how uh, th these different things have touched upon people. I, I was saying to a possible director um, of the shows that I want to do, the series that I want to do, I said, okay, so how many people do you know that was in the emergency room when a bloody Andy Warhol was wheeled in, <laughs> shot by a woman named Valerie Solanas, yeah. who was the head of an organization called the Society of Cutting Up Men, Scum. <laughs> and they were 
They and everybody in my neighborhood knew all about it. And uh, and I says, oh, and it was only a couple. The hospital was only a couple of blocks away from Patricia Fields' store on Eighth Street. And Granny takes a trip where Tommy Hilfiger got his idea for starting to. Yeah, you know, I mean, I know all this stuff. Right. And. And it's interesting when you can tell the backstory. No, so I guess we are expecting another book from you. That's great. I mean, uh, we look forward to that. Absolutely. Um, and I guess this is, you know, coming up to my last question. Oprah Winfrey once said that you were one of the richest people she knows. And I, I just wondered. <laughs> <laughs> That's when Oprah was first starting because she's a hell of a lot richer than I am. I am, yeah. I am average. I, I mean... That's so funny, uh -huh. right? So I met Oprah at the beginning of her career. And of course, when she met me, I had already had Like a Virgin, you know, Diana yeah. Ross, yeah. David Bowie, Duran Duran, In Excess, We Are Family. She, you know, come on. So she's meeting me at probably the apex of my career in the early 80s, and she's just starting out. So the people that were on her show obviously didn't have the kind of track record that I have, but now Oprah runs with nothing but billionaires. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am hardly a billionaire. I, I still work every day. I, I mean, honestly, I work for a living. If I didn't, if I didn't work, I probably wouldn't know what to do. I'd probably go crazy. So, um, yeah, I got it. You know, yeah. and I live, I live in a very modest house. I'm not opulent. I, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, it's just not who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I wouldn't even feel comfortable living like that. Okay. So. But I mean, the, the question that arises is like, what would you like your legacy to be? I don't mean your artistic legacy. Um, I mean, you know, the assets that, that you've accumulated. What what do you want them, you know, in a in a hundred years when you're no longer around, where's the, where's that all going to go? I, I honestly, my heart says that if We Are Family Foundation can become a viable, worldwide, recognized charity to help youth around the world to improve conditions on this planet, my God, wow, would that be something? I mean, yeah. to have a hit record is hard, but to do something like that is really, really hard. And that would be incredible. You know, the other day, one of our uh, global team leaders called me up for help with a problem. And I just thought it was so amazing that with all of the, the teens that have come through our organization, they stay attached to the organization and help it become bigger so that maybe one day, you know, we're, I don't know, the size of UNICEF or something like that. That would be incredible to me. I would be like, are you kidding? From a little acorn, a giant oak grew. That's a beautiful note to end on, Niall. I, I really appreciate it so much. Uh, thank you very much for being a guest on this program. And um, I mean, you are a star, regardless of how you like to describe yourself. Thank you so much, Farah. Thank you, Niall. Take care. Thank you to Nile Rogers for joining me on my second episode of Culture Blast, a series of deep-dive interviews with personalities from the world of culture. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. 
I look forward to you joining my next conversation. I'm Khalil Osiris, founder of the Truth and Reconciliation Conversations Global Summit. And I have an important message for you. Racism is one of the most urgent challenges facing humanity. Through truthful conversations, we can begin to navigate this challenge, paving the way to better understand one another. The 2021 Truth and Reconciliation Conversations Global Summit will provide a blueprint for how these conversations can take place using five key commitments to guide us. The summit will premiere a thought-provoking documentary that illuminates the process of reconciliation through the stories of men and women who have confronted racial challenges throughout their lives. Attendees will have access to engaging workshops and provocative onstage panels with global leaders to deepen their understanding of how to communicate about race and what steps to take in order to move forward. In a time when silence is no longer an option, it's more important than ever to start the conversation. Register now at trcglobalsummit.org.